0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are finally hearing from somebody who has been a dream guest of mine all along. I have been trying for over five years to get this man on this show. It is Go West frontman Peter Cox. Now, I love Go West, and I have a feeling when casual music people think of Go West, they probably think of a couple of things. They probably think about synth pop. 80s synth pop, British synth pop, and they probably think about a couple of songs. They think about this one, we close our eyes, and then of course we think about, they think about the huge one, the King of Wishful Thinking. What I think gets lost is that there is so much more to Peter than Go West than the sound of Go West. And I think that becomes very clear in this conversation. His heart is in more rock and like blues and even country. Paul Rogers is a huge influence on peter cox that doesn't necessarily come out when you listen to go west but that's what's really going on i wonder if he even feels a little conflicted about it maybe he does i don't know but anyway we go deep on the hits of course i love go west i have all their albums and i think they're fantastic i also like all the other stuff peter cox does and so we talk about all those things too His solo material which as i said is more bluesy and more country even i think you'll be surprised at the layers and the shades of who Peter Cox is that you may or may not have even known. I have to give a huge thanks to friend of the show, I think we can say that at this point, Martin Page. Martin Page, folks, is the gift that keeps on giving because he co-wrote King of Wishful Thinking and I have been trying to get Peter on forever and Martin helped make that happen. So thank you, Martin, for that. Anyway, I think you're gonna enjoy this conversation. I hope you reassess Go West and We kick it off with a few minutes of learning about this song right here, which I don't care what anyone says. This is still one of my favorite songs ever. I have never lost my love and enthusiasm for this track. I love it as much today as I did then. So I wanted to hear all about it. He called me from his home in Surrey, outside of London. I have been trying to make this happen for five years. And so this is a dream. You've been one of my dream (laughs) interviews for over five years now, I am
1: so grateful I'm, we're doing this. I'm sure you say that to all your that is absolutely
0: not true, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not true. Um, so anyway, it uh, it just shows that if you're persistently stalking, that things work out for you. Um, anyway, now I one of the things I've been uh, I've been debating how I want to kick this off because. I, I want the thing I want to know more than anything is a question you may get asked a lot, and I'm afraid you're going to think I'm a jerk by asking it. But we close our eyes is still one of the most exciting songs I can think of. Every time I hear those gigantic synth swooshes, I just it is still exciting to me. And good, I good realize, to hear. Yes, and I want to know about everything else. I want to know about all the solo albums and everything, but. I want to know where that song came from. I want you to tell me, like, you know, I don't even know how you and Richard write music together. How do you, where did the germ of this idea come from? Who thought of these synths? Who thought of those lines? Can you yeah, tell me well, everything?
1: I can, I can sort of, you'll have to stop me when it gets boring, but. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I've realized uh, in hindsight how many times we approached a number of our songs. The first version of We Close Our Eyes was a mid-tempo kind of thing with Richard and I were big uh, Michael McDonald in fans. Mm. In fact, that's arguably one of the reasons for the name of the band that we were doing what we were doing very out of step with what was mm. happening in the UK. Mm. So, um, yeah, the first version of We Close Our Eyes was like a mid-tempo thing, much more gentle, uh, and didn't have that initial... Uh, synth motif at the beginning and then later when we started working on the songs with or working on what became the album with gary stevenson who produced that album and dave west his unsung hero of a keyboard mm-hmm. player synth programmer gary one of the main things that gary uh, wanted to do with a number of the songs which though simple as an idea has made a big difference to our live appearances ever since, Mm -hmm. was that he wanted to raise the tempo of anything as fast as we could make it go without ruining the song, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that meant a dramatic increase in the tempo of our version of We Close Our Eyes. And then um, we were brainstorming and someone said, you know, we need something at the start here to capture people, you know, to get people listening straight Mm -hmm. away. The rest of it was just sort of a, Uh, everyone throwing in ideas and Mm. Dave West, as I say, dialing up the sounds, Um, Gary and to a lesser extent Dave were both very into the technology of music. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we made our first album at a time when there was a lot of programming going on. It was the early days of sampling. It was less about having a live drummer and bass Mm -hmm. player and more about using sampled sounds, which is Mm -hmm. obviously what you hear when Mm -hmm. we close our eyes. And in most, well, in some instances, we all found that the more sounds that you overdubbed to make a composite sound as that synth sound is in We Close Our Eyes, the bigger it got. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, you could could say, well, um, add something at this frequency and something at that frequency to just make a very big sound. So I don't know if that answers your question mm-hmm. at all, but it does. Yeah. So where, like, when you and Richard, so
0: okay, obviously you, um, you know, you, you two are writing music together wherever it is, however it is that you do it, and but that is the final product is not necessarily what you heard in your head. That was a that was a byproduct of studio wizardry from these guys you're mentioning that are working on that. Al- that first album is so perfect, by the way. I mean, so much of it, what you do is, but how do you and Richard? write music together
1: are you the lyricist is he is who's the music guy how does it work if only it were that cleanly divided john um <laughs> because no we're both pretty controlling guys i'd uh, love to get our own way uh-huh. which led to a number of head-to-heads during the making of the first album but i'm sure that's not unusual you know mm-hmm. people i want it my way no i want it my way and there'd be yeah. a, a you know a standoff and every each one of us stormed out of the studio during the uh, making of that first record at some time or another, even the producer. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, when we were in the early stages, of we close our eyes, Richard had a chord progression. Richard is a big Todd Rundgren fan. And by association with Richard, I've listened to a lot of Todd as well. And and to a lesser extent, I'm also a fan. Mm -hmm. The reason I mentioned Todd is because Richard has a, a feel for a chord which isn't necessarily a straightforward major or minor, but something more, I don't know, complicated, candy, mm-hmm. that that uh, appeals to his ear. And so he had the chord progression of the chorus of We Close Our Eyes, which is rather more sophisticated than might be apparent uh, when you hear the end result. There's a lot going on in there, and uh, we've worked mm-hmm. with a number of keyboard players live over the years, and when we demonstrate what those chords are, people often mm-hmm. say, really? Is that what's going on in there? I would no idea. And so with those chords then, I kind of elbowed my way in at the keyboard and started fooling around and and, and coming up with a melody over the top of those chords. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to take more credit for the baseline of the song. Because as I remember it, that was kind of mainly me. But then if you were interviewing Richard, he might disagree. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of the way it is. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's always, well, okay, well, it could, could we not do this if you're going there? And so on and so on. So, yeah, okay. and when it comes to the words, uh, it's the same kind of principle. And I must say, I think that's one reason why some of the lyrics, certainly on that first album, became somewhat convoluted. I think Mm. that personally, and again, if Richard were here, he'd be be arguing. But Mm -hmm. I think when I listen to other artists, the most successful lyrics are often written from a single person's point of view and often from personal experience. Not always, but Uh I do think that that is a that's a more straightforward way to get to the essence of a song. Um, I think We Close Our Eyes wasn't a lyrical disaster, but there certainly are some songs that you were very kind to say that the album is as good as you think it is. But 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 some of the lyrics there are, you know, you look back at them and think, really? Uh, But then uh. again, you know, I think often when, often I think particularly to the more casual listener, people who listen to pop songs, aren't necessarily really that bothered about what the song is saying or even what the lyrics are, you know, it's, It's you know, the guy who's driving a truck. Mm -hmm. Can he whistle the song? If he can, (laughs) then, you know, that's a level of success really.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm not a lyric person
1: at all, really.
0: And, um, so uh, maybe the, uh, maybe, I was going to say maybe that's why it appeals to me, but then that just reduces your artistry and I don't mean for it to sound that way. I uh, I just find that first album to be practically perfect. Now, I I do need to ask when you're, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time too, when you when you were, are making the video and either Godly or Cream is asking you to dance around with a giant wrench,
1: yeah. how are you feeling? What are you thinking to yourself? Well, I think Godly and Cream obviously very very smart guys and they knew that neither Richard nor I had any experience very little live performance experience and zero on-camera experience so Mm -hmm. the first part of that uh, process was um, to meet with them and then they they asked us to bring to a further meeting the clothes that we were considering wearing. So we, we went to this upmarket clothes store on a street called the King's Road in Chelsea, in London, mm-hmm. and we borrowed some clothes from a from a very contemporary store. Took them to the meeting with Godney and Cream, and uh, they were clearly not that impressed with anything that we brought. Um, so, at the end of that meeting, having taken off the various bits and pieces. I put on my street clothes, which mm-hmm. I cannot explain to you what I was thinking, but <laughs> at the time I was wearing, you know, I don't know what you call it. You call them a singlet, don't you, in the U.S.? Uh, we I call them a tank top. Tank top, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah well, in England we call them vests. So, you know, so I put my vest and jeans on and Godley and Cream kind of looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, and, you know, that can work. Let's go with that. I think they were looking for some kind of a very much less <laughs> appealing... Uh-huh version of, I don't know, that Marlon Brando kind of archetype, the mechanic thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But the wrench that you mentioned, I didn't know anything about that until the morning of the video shoot. Uh, So we turned up not knowing what was going to be happening, and there was this wrench there and, uh, Mm. again, very clever on the part of Mm Godly and Cream because it gave me a prop um, Mm -hmm. to so that I had something to do with my hands Um, and also that wrench was a lot heavier than it might appear. So um, I could only manage to throw it around for a while. And of course, it it made some small difference to my rather stringy physique uh, (laughs) in the video. But the first shot um, that we did uh, was of me. I'm standing about, I don't know, four or five feet from the camera with godly and cream obviously out of shot on either Mm -hmm. side of the camera looking at me and while i'm lip syncing the song they're just shouting instructions at me really put the wrench up there move down there you know and all this kind of thing so that is how they i won't say bullied but Uh that's (laughs) how they manipulated that performance out of me and i just kept going until yeah i couldn't um lift the wrench over my head any longer and then i would take a break and they'd get richard in with the contrasting cool look in the suit uh-huh. with the guitar uh-huh. um, and i remember it was in january we shot the video in london and it was uh, there was snow outside uh, uh and so wow. i would be really actually drenched in sweat from them uh-huh. for my efforts and probably a lot of nervous energy and sure. adrenaline going on as well. Uh, so after my sh- my takes, they would open these warehouse doors to the street and this freezing air would come in. Yeah. So I, have often nice. said since that, um, that was one of the hardest days work I, I can remember doing. It was a long, hard day. That really was.
0: I believe it. I, um, I, Am amazed when you really—I mean—as much as we all loved videos back then. If you—if I have to stop and think about how uncomfortable I would feel, standing by myself, swinging, you know, <laughs> dancing with a wrench with, yeah. in a room full of people and lip-syncing, I would feel so. Self-conscious, and yet you guys, I mean, this is why you're a rock star and I'm not, because you can pull that kind of stuff off, but I couldn't do that. It would just, you know, it would play on my mind so badly.
1: Yeah, I I do know what you mean. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's my overall performance ethic, if that's the right word, is really that once you're standing in front of that camera or in a live setting, once you're standing in front of that audience, something better happen you know yeah, uh, that yeah, that's that's true. what that's what kind of makes any whatever the hilarious fool of myself I'm making there that's what makes that happen it's just like well I better do something yeah I can't just I can't stand just here. stand here you know oh, yeah. yeah
0: exactly yeah that's it okay boy you, you... Thank you so much for indulging me with those stories. That's 35 years of curiosity right there. I am so (laughs) grateful. Now, okay, getting ready to talk to you, I discovered something on uh, YouTube that I had never heard before, and it's an album by a band called Terra Nova. Oh,
1: goodness me. Yes,
0: you were the lead singer (laughs) of this band called Terra Nova, and they put out some obscure album in, in 1980 that sounds nothing like Go West. In fact, the rest of Go West, doesn't sound anything like Go West. And the rest of your solo stuff doesn't sound like Go West. This Go West moment is like a blip on the entire Peter Cox spectrum of music. But (laughs) so I wanna know how you went from the sounds of Terra Nova, On My Way is a really good song by the way. so good. I want to know how you went from the guy, the young, hungry, upstart guy that's fronting Terranova to being the guy who's singing Call Me in this very prominent, you know, synth pop soul band. Where, where did that transition happen?
1: Well, obviously that you're talking about a period there of some years. So it was a, a slow process, but uh, I'll try and be as concise as I can. When I was Sixteen or seventeen, the band and particularly the singer that I most admired was uh, the band Free, with Paul Mm, Rodgers is the lead vocalist. I'm sure you're aware of that, yeah. So, uh, and uh, and Kosoff as a guitar player. I mean, you know, it's a long time ago now. So, and obviously, you can look on YouTube and see any number of thousands of incredibly technically accomplished guitar players that, and maybe Kosoff's. Technique, I don't know. It was mm-hmm. of its time, but emotionally, mm-hmm. it really, I it really connected with me, and I, I still haven't taken the time to go back and study or listen uh, in depth to Hendrix, who clearly mm-hmm. was a, you know, uh, a seminal guitar player, but at that time Hendrix was a bit too m- raw and messy for me and Kossoff played slowly enough mm. and with such emotion that as i say it really connected with me and it's it, you know it's it's very obvious i think to anyone who listens to free that Roger's influences were soul singers of the 60s oh, uh, exactly. so it yeah. seems that way to me anyway yep. Otis Redding and those kinds of guys yep. and so those influences were In my musical makeup, if you like, right from the start, and so we—I was in a band that played complete uh, only free material. You would call it a tribute band in this day and age, Mm -hmm. but but then we—I know I don't know that we had. I suppose we did have tribute bands, but I wasn't aware of them, and I didn't think of us as a tribute band. We just didn't have any songs, and our common ground was that we all loved free. So that was what we were doing. And in connection with trying to get a publishing deal, we were promised a meeting with John Glover, who was the manager of Free, when they had their big success with All Right Now. And he continued to be involved with them. And unfortunately, was on the aircraft with Kossoff on that terrible flight mm. when Kossoff passed away. Mm. So it was very exciting to us that we would meet John, uh, the manager of Free. Uh, and, I, and we did meet the manager of Free. And then... Mm. John had some advice for me, which was that I might consider breaking away from the other members of the band Mm. and going on my own. And of course, you know, I felt a certain loyalty to the band. But, you know, remember, I'm 17 or 18 here. So I'm (laughs) thinking this is an opportunity, uh, could be an opportunity for me. John was managing... Jim Capaldi, who was the drummer Ooh, in Traffic, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and Jim was having a chart success as a singer with a version of Love Hurts, I think,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, here in the UK. And the reason I mention that is because John put me on a retainer, and he put me on the road singing background vocals for Jim. No that way. Was my first So that was my first real, actual, in inverted commas, professional uh, musical really? gig, um, I didn't yeah. Know that. So it was it was great experience because I got to be on the road with Alan Spenner, was playing bass with Jim Capaldi. You know, uh, Pete Bonus was on guitar. Proper, you know, professional, mm-hmm. great, great, great players. Yes. And uh, so I had that experience. And John paid me a retainer until he couldn't afford to pay me a retainer anymore, mm-hmm. and then we kind of drifted apart. And I got uh, a residency gig. And I'm getting off the track here, aren't I? So you asked no, me okay. how, to, how to get... Oh, uh, I should have... And then later, John became involved with Colin Pattenden and Chris Slade, the rhythm section from Manfred Man's Earth Band. Right. Who uh, Manfred Man's Earth Band had uh, disbanded. Mm-hmm. Colin and Chris wanted to continue with the band. So John put me in touch with them, and they had a... They were building a studio on the uh, the film set at Shepperton Studios, mm. and uh, as Terra Nova, because that's the band uh, that that we formed together, we uh, is it? It's called beta testing, isn't it? We beta tested their yes. studio, so so we, yeah. so we ironed out the rough spots of the studio while they were building it, and in that process, <laughs> that album was made. Okay. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, these other guys were all definitely coming at music from much more of a, of what we might call today, a prog direction. Yeah. I remember there's a there's a 14-minute 14 tr- 14 track on the Nova album called Ringtail, which is an ode to lemurs. <laughs> and I, uh,
0: really? Really? I-
1: So, and I can remember, <laughs> I can remember going into the studio one morning uh, and standing in front of the microphone trying to emulate a, a ring-tailed lemur, uh, which is uh, not one of the highlights of my recording career. So that was Terra Nova and uh, that again, okay. we, we and then we. We went uh, on the road uh, in Germany, and by this time we were calling the band Earth Band Without Manfred or some such thing in order to try and trade on uh, the Earth Band brand, and Mm. Manfred's label promptly sued uh, Mm. Colin and Chris, and I can remember sitting in a, a hotel room with Chris Slade maybe it was Colin, taking down his statement in the full awareness that when we arrived back in the UK the following day, they were going to be arrested. At the oh, airport. really? <laughs> yeah, so that was that was another bit wow. of rock and roll comedy. Anyway, so uh, Terry okay. Over kind of dwindled to a halt, and I got uh, a residency. And moving forward now several years, I started to write with Richard, uh, who I had met, some years previously when we were both in bands that were heavily influenced by Free, if they weren't playing Free's material still, the, wow. the guitar, bass, drums and vocal sort of core idea. Mm-hmm. Richard was a bass player and he played in another band that were doing a similar thing. So that's how I had met Richard. Okay. And then okay. I was in residency doing a covers band in uh, the north of England. Richard was working on a free advertising newspaper and at the Mm -hmm. weekend, some weekends he would drive up to Sheffield and we would hang out and watch films and listen to music. And Mm -hmm. that's when we started to sort of muck about writing songs without any real ambition or or certainly no particular direction as to how we were going to make this into a career. And then finally we reached the point where we got a publishing deal Uh, The publishers very kindly put us into a a cheap London studio, which ended up being the same studio where we recorded that first Go West album, for the most part. And we uh, demoed uh, the songs that we were writing as we were writing them. So um, we had practically complete creative freedom, which was a good education, again. And we eventually had... We'd been turned down, like so many other artists by just about every label in the UK. Uh-huh. And the reaction was often, yeah, we love what you're doing, but we don't hear a single. We love what you're doing, but mm. we don't hear a single. So, That's weird, because uh,
0: there's like four singles off that album.
1: Well, you've got to remember that they were hearing different versions of those things. Oh, okay. I could okay. see how someone might hear an early version of we close our eyes and think, no, I don't see that in the charts. Mm. Because as okay. I say, it was sounded more like the Doobie Brothers than the got version it. that you're familiar with. Okay. Uh, so, um, Eventually, uh, Richard and I were so frustrated with getting this same reaction from labels all the time that we resolved to try and write something that we thought was really commercial. And that song was Call Me. Something that was straightforward and that we tried to make radio friendly from the start, and we had become friends with Gary, who I mentioned earlier, yep. Gary, who produced the album, and with Dave, and uh, we were working with them on Gary's eight-track uh, recorder uh, in his mum and dad's flat close to Heathrow Airport, mm. um, where I actually recorded some of the vocals for Cormier's. Really? I anyway, no way. so getting a bit more. Up to, we're in the early 80s now and um, we had these songs and uh, we didn't have any means really of putting any pressure on labels um, who had turned us down. So I got back in touch with John Glover, who I mentioned previously, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who managed Jim Capaldi and who put me on the road with Jim. And I said to John, we've got some songs here that we think are strong. And John called in a favour from... Mike Vernon, I don't know if you know that name. He's, I don't uh, recognize that name. No, he's a, a very successful producer of blues artists, and he had oh. his own, probably still does have his own studio um, in Chipping Norton. I think it might have been called Blues Unlimited, but anyway. Okay. So John parlayed us five days uh, in this recording studio, and that's where that the, the nucleus, uh, the four of us, Dave, Gary, Richard and myself, to whom was added the engineer at Rooster, which is where we recorded the rest of the first Go West album. And we recorded the, the two rhythm tracks for We Close Our Eyes and Call Me there in those five days. So throw in Paul Rogers and all that wow. I should have said it. when I was um, uh, in my earlier teens, the first music that i got really passionate about was J- the jamaican reggae of around yeah. 1970 because okay. that was the that was the clique of guys that i was hanging around with as a young teenager that yeah. was the music that we loved and then from reggae to motown and so motown i always say was really the soundtrack to my own teenage years well, that, so you've got all those soulful influences in yeah. there and then rogers with a bit of rock and then a brief diversion through a bit of prog. Got it. Um Wild. and then you've also got to th- yeah, and then you've also got to throw in Gary Stevenson's influences. Yeah. yeah. Because Gary always a little bit more into the tech side of things. And I, I, I like to say about Gary, which is a bit dismissive and perhaps a little bit unfair, but Gary didn't have the feeling for soul music really in the way that I certainly did. And I think it's fair to say that Richard mm-hmm. did. So I always say about Gary, who is uh, a guitar player, that he went from Thin Lizzy to Buggles in one big step, (laughs) bypassing black music altogether kind of thing. But but yeah, but but the Trevor Horn um, influence and Buggles Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, that really excited Gary. And so that is where the reverbs and the tech side of the sound of that first Go West album comes. And of course, Dave... Uh, again, a, just an unsung hero with the just, it was such a resource that I didn't, that I did take for granted at the time and have since more and more realized, particularly now as we, here we are in the UK in lockdown, mm-hmm. I'm struggling to learn, catch up with how to use soft sense and how to mm-hmm. record my vocals at home without any help. And yeah. in those days having Dave uh, as a resource to say, Dave, can you give me a sound like this? He dial it up in 45 seconds. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, you took it for granted, but it just made the process so creatively simple and quick. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that at the time. And he was just an absolute diamond.
0: All right. Let me, let me tell you kind of a sad story. Maybe you've heard this before. So I remember seeing the video for um, Don't Look Down, the sequel, On night tracks here in the States and I go to the music land in my local mall with my cousin Jim and I buy dancing on the couch and I don't know what dancing on the couch means but I know that I love (laughs) Go West and I love that song pop the tape in and um dancing on the couch just wasn't quite what i thought i wanted from uh you know it uh, was quite a departure and um i uh it was it was kind of a bummer i want to hear it from you it's such a great song I like you know the, the peppier stuff remained peppy but yeah it was so different and um, yeah now cut to many years later I own that CD and I'm fine with it now I've come to I'm as a grown man I can find the the um, pleasures and the beauty of that album but at the time it was not what a 14 year old kid wanted what happened there what were is this and it, let me preface this by saying I have a feeling that it's a story similar to. ABC or Human League who come out of the gate with these gigantic landmark synth driven albums and they want to prove to everybody that they're more than this and so yeah, they, they do this second this other thing on their follow up album to show how diverse they are. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm guessing that's what happened to you.
1: Yeah, that's not too far from the truth. In honesty, okay. we were being marketed as a pop act and we were very naive at the start of the process of promoting the first Go West album. We had no idea what to expect. We were at the tail end of what was called the new romantic era in the UK. So I would show up to a photo shoot, for example, and the makeup artist would put mascara on me. Mm. And when she was done, you know, you'd look at myself in the mirror and say, I don't know, does that look all right? I have no idea, you know. Because <laughs> I'd never having worn makeup in my life. Right. But that was the fashion. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, a certain audience got an idea of who and what we were as a band, and you're absolutely right. When it came time to make a second record, there was a a misguided uh, desire to prove that we were musicians rather Mm -hmm. than pop stars. And it gave us a chance also to indulge our desire to make to, to work with people like randy brecker for example and mm-hmm. pete Battesi, who played piano on that record and mm-hmm. pino pino paladino had played on the first go west record but it we were aiming i suppose for steely dan or yeah. that kind of artist that's what we wanted to do but you're right in hindsight we would have done things differently and certainly the main issue is that we didn't have enough strong songs for that record, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. decamped from. Uh, we we went to Denmark. Another mistake. Gary will take full responsibility Ooh. for that. He saw the he saw the list of technical equipment in this studio and went. Oh, we have to work there. <laughs> by which time, by the way, we were already booked to to record in Montserrat, which would have been Ooh. infinitely more comfortable and Ooh. fun. Yes, uh, and and by the by. Because our record label owned the Montserrat studios, when we elected to go to Denmark, we still had to play the studio. Uh-huh. At Montserrat. Oh no. so we, They just stuck. They stuck that on the on the you desk. Got yes, on the Ouch. yeah. So, so we went to Denmark. We didn't have enough material, uh, and I think that for various reasons that we don't need to discuss here, neither Richard nor I was in the best place either. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't creative gold. And yeah, I mean, as I say, I think that one lesson Mm -hmm. that I'm still trying to learn Mm -hmm. um, when I'm asked, what would you do different when you look back? I I think that I realize now that it's much more important to have a record at the right time rather than the best record you Mm -hmm. could ever possibly make two years too late. Because the audience will forget about you real quick. Pop is very disposable, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And by the time Dancing on the Couch came out, for whatever its other faults were, uh, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a poppy single, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what you yourself have said on that record. And the reason why Don't Look Down is on the American version of Dancing on the Couch is exactly that reason. Mm Because the label looked at the album we delivered from from Denmark and said, well, we don't see a single. I had a few. They yeah. took Don't Look Down with the additional bits and pieces that we added to that song after the success of We Close Our Eyes, the synth motif at the start of the song. We changed the arrangement slightly and we put that, or they, I should say, put that song on the US version of, uh, of Dancing on the Couch and that's why it's there.
0: Yeah, I had a feeling that might be the case. Um, okay, so one thing that's interesting and I wonder if you feel this way is that Go go West, really, other than Future Now, which is so fantastic, by the way. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But the core Go uh, go West period is really only three albums. And uh, there's not a ton of material, but that's, you know, that's what you've built. Everything else you do, that's when you go out on tour and you play the 80s festivals. This is the core of what people want to hear from Peter Cox and Richard Drumming to this day. So when indian summer comes around now i've had peter wolf on here and julian Mendelssohn, by the way we both talked about you cuz we love you and
1: I don't believe a word they say
0: <laughs> 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 they said good things too and martin page obviously who helped get us uh, yeah. together Martin's and a uh, good lad, yeah. he is the best and uh, so i when indian summer comes around and king of wishful thinking is a giant hit faithful is a big hit and then it ends like why were you uh, now i'm sensing that you and richard love each other but there's a lot of tension there not anger tension just creative tension was that overwhelming everything at that point why end it when things are finally happening
1: yeah well uh, all reasonable questions and your your assumption is not a million miles from the truth either you know we worked we'd been working a long time to finally get a, uh, a US top 10 single with the King of Wishful Thinking. And uh, in order to do that, we went out on uh, a radio promo tour, sharing a hotel room. And mm. by this time, we're like in our early 30s. And we never <laughs> foresaw that we'd be sharing a hotel room at that point in our so-called careers. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like you might have heard this story from other artists. It's like a marriage without yeah. any of the good bits, really. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we've been in each other's pockets writing, recording, promoting various records for so long, and it, we just needed some space. I, I definitely needed some space. Uh, didn't, as I've said, with the writing process, a rather negative way of describing it is, One of us is always running their ideas past the other one, and effectively asking permission in a way. And I just, you know, I just got tired of it. I just didn't want to have to, yeah, I just didn't want to have to run everything by somebody else for permission to do this or that. And I, I'm sure that Richard, on some level, felt the same way. But yeah, he wasn't thrilled that I elected to leave the band, which is the only way that I could see that I could get some space really mm-hmm. to, to do something on my own but you know like like many hundreds of lead singers before me that have left the bands that they were successful in you know I I, I was proud of my solo album but you know yeah. obviously it wasn't it wasn't successful in the way that go west were but yeah. you know yeah. I knew best, obviously. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Speaking of your solo album, my wife and I, we vacation in Hawaii as often as we can. We go about every Wonderful. other year. Wonderful. Yes. And yeah. uh, I have a tradition where at least one day on my vacation, I need to lay on the beach and listen to the Peter Cox solo album on my iPod. God uh, oh, bless you. <laughs> that, uh, my favorite song, by the way, is Change. I love that yeah. song, Change.
1: gonna say I'm particularly proud of that myself that's my Good. that's my personal favorite song from the Good. album yeah.
0: yes yeah. so I um, but that you know that album is kind of going back to the to the unsuspecting diversity of not just go west but of Peter Cox the artist himself that album is like an R&B album I mean you're a soul singer going back to what you were saying about you know getting really into Motown there that album is an R&B album where's Were you actively trying at that point to do something different? Did someone advise you, you know, it'd be really good for you is to make an R&B album? Is that what you were into? What motivated this change?
1: Well, a good part of the credit for that's got to go to Peter Vitesi, who produced that record. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter is, you know, people say to me, so you're a musician and in a fashion, I suppose I am. But, you know, I pick up a guitar. My pool knowledge is limited. I can, I can come up with a song, mm-hmm. but Pete Battesi is a musician just beyond. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to describe. He's he's just so incredibly talented. Let me give you, um, if I can, brief description what is... of what a, a working day would be like. If by this time I was living in California, and Pete came out uh, to California and worked with me writing the songs for that album, and we were, had a little keyboard set up. In one of the bedrooms of the house, and in the morning, I would sit in the garden drinking coffee, and mm-hmm. Pete would tinker about in there. And after two or three hours, literally no more than that, he would say, oh, "All right, Pete, I've got something." And I would go in, and he would play me. And I, this is no joke. He would play me four or five pretty complete ideas. No way. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about a piano part and a drum machine. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about overdubs and so that the requirement of of, on my part to to have to exercise imagination to see what the thing could be was so much less because it already sounded awesome. And Mm -hmm. he would say, do you have any interest in any of these ideas? So, you know, just such Mm an incredibly accomplished musician way beyond my imaginings that I could ever do that. But going back to something that I touched on earlier, one of the nice things about making my solo album was that I got to write the lyrics on my own. Mm. So for better or worse, those lyrical statements on that record, they all come from me. So, and there's there's a technical aspect to it in the sense that I also think a singer, any singer needs to, believe in what they're singing in order to be convincing when they sing those words so it's you know it's even right down to the vowel sound does Mm -hmm. it sound good if i sing an ooh or you know and so on when you're when you're writing the words that's all part of the process but musically yeah i mean pete was kind of guiding me if you think back to what i was saying about Mm -hmm. presenting me with four or five potential ideas and saying which of these you have any interest in any of these musically he was creating the landscape in a way. So right. I must say, I, I didn't really, I still don't look back at that record and think of it as an R B record. Maybe oh, there's really? a couple of, ba- there's a couple of ballads on there. True. Certainly I, I wrote with the guys from the family stand. So they would obviously hmm. bring some R and B influence into those songs but I don't think of change, for example, as particularly being true. Good point. Know, um, but but you know I, I was still am proud of those lyrics. So yeah. as I say, if if nothing else, the freedom to write lyrically from from my own point of view was it definitely was a freedom that I was enjoying. Good, and you mentioning how much you love the. The
0: Doobie Brothers are one of my favorite bands too. And Michael McDonald, now your cover of What A Fool Believes makes so much sense. I'm sure you were just chomping at the bit to sing that song.
1: I was and I wasn't. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I'm still a huge Michael McDonald. What a, uh-huh. what a, just an unbelievably Amazing brilliant voice. singer. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's becoming a recurring theme. The reason why we ended up recording that cover was because after "Ain't Gonna Cry Again," which was the initial single from my solo album. It's an outdated term now, but in the UK it was kind of a turntable hit, mm. got a lot of radio play, which was great, but didn't really generate any particular record sales. And so the next song from that album that was going to be uh, the next single was uh, a song called If You Walk Away.
2: Again, me smile away. me like you too, but still she won't be.
1: One of the main radio stations in the country, when approached by the label, uh, they said, well, this isn't a hit and we're not going to play it. So really? Yeah. So that was so then the label oh. said, right, well, we can't we obviously can't go with this as the second single because this big station has told us point blank mm. that they're not going to play this song. Mm. So then we started looking at covers and. Uh, uh, here's a, a little idea of what might have been one of the songs that we uh, routined before Pete decided that he just couldn't make uh, a contemporary pop single out of it was God Only Knows, the Beach really? song. Really? Yeah. You almost did a version of that? We were, we worked on it for some time. And in the end, mm. Pete just said, you know, because it's quite short, God Only Knows. Yeah, I think it's two, yeah. two minutes, 10, two minutes, 20, something like that. Yeah. And Pete just couldn't figure a way of creating an arrangement that would be satisfactory for radio. So mm-hmm. amongst the various other things that we discussed, um, What the Fool Believes was one of those songs. But, uh, you know, again, I, I know I said that uh, shooting the video for we close our eyes was a long day, but man, that vocal session for What really? the Fool Believes was a brutal, brutal day of work. Oh, you know, Pete was um, really... Beating me with a stick to try and get those high harmonies out of me, uh, and it's uh, you know the 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 range that McDonald Michael McDonald has is uh, mm. is substantial, and I, I'm I'm kind of not really in that area. So obviously right. we changed the key of the song, but it's a it's a very very demanding song. But I, I think it. it's a good yeah. I think it's a, it came out brilliantly. It's a, it, sure you know, it came, yeah 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 it did. It's great. Um, okay, I gotta throw in. I
0: still have so many questions, but I gotta throw in. We have some uh, Patreon members of our podcast, and they okay. sent me over some questions that they wanted me to ask you. Okay. Uh, one in particular was, and we sort of touched on this earlier, but you know, um, you guys go West, getting signed in '82, but not putting out an album until '85. What did you do in those three years? How do you? And th- well, this is something we touch on on the on the podcast very sensitively, is the business side of things. How, is, sure. how are you two paying your bills in
1: that three year span? That's kind of a gap, you know? What are you doing in that time? Well, I think that Richard was still working a day job. And, and in 1982, we didn't get signed to a record label. We got signed to a publishing company. Ah, uh, so, okay. um, so we spent those two, three years writing songs. And as I said earlier, recording the demos at Rooster Studios and uh, just having the experience of being in a professional Mm -hmm. recording studio, albeit a a low-rent one. Sorry, Nick. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Nick Sykes is the owner of the studio. But we obviously had some amazing times there. But we were, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of learning what it's like to be in a recording studio. Okay. Um, And our publishing company... Uh, renewed our option. it wasn't an expensive option to renew, but they Mm -hmm. renewed it in 83 and in 84, uh, believing in us as songwriters. Then uh, Ron Fair, um, I don't know if you know. That name sounds a little
0: familiar. That sounds familiar, actually.
1: Yeah, I I think I should know which label Ron is now the head of because I'm Uh. sure he is. But he he signed uh, Christina Aguilera and the Black Eyed yeah. and okay. and so on and so on. You know, very, very successful a r mm-hmm. man. And a real music guy as well, as we found, because he... I'll get to this in a minute because I'm jumping the gun. So Ron was in town as a young a r guy for Chrysalis Records looking for songs for Pat Benatar, And mm-hmm. he went to ATB Music, who our publishers, and they played him a number of things. And at the end of the meeting, because he'd already heard... Uh, he, had, he heard Call Me and We Close Our Eyes without knowing that it was us because he was aware of us from previous meetings. And at the end of the meeting, he said, "Oh, before I go, what happened to those guys, Cox and Drummy? Mm. And uh, Sally Perriman, I imagine, or whoever had met with him to play him the songs." said, oh, that, those last two songs, that was Cox and Drummy. He said, oh, I have to meet with those guys. So we had dinner and he and 40 days later we were signed. Wow. So he, wow. made that happen. he made that happen really quickly. Okay. And again, after Dancing on the Couch and its failure in the UK, we had a year-long standoff with our UK label, uh, by which time, because of course, Ron was overseeing the making of Dancing on the Couch, and when it uh, turned out to be the difficult second album that it was, effectively, Ron was demoted so far uh, because of his responsibility for the budget of the record mm-hmm. that he had no option really to leave. So uh, if you fast forward to the year that we had in the doldrums with our own label in the UK, and then lo and behold, Ron, who was by this time at EMI America, called and said, where's the next Go West? I do not understand what's going on. So we said, we told him our tale of woe. And again, in a matter of weeks, he had rescued us from Chrysalis and signed us to EMI America, and then we were working with him again. Wow. Wow. Again, you know, it's a... Really believed in us. And, yeah, you uh, have to have
0: those champions
1: and fought, fought, fought our corner, mm-hmm. and then, and then, with all respect to Peter Wolf, because I know you've spoken to him, and I love uh-huh. Peter, and he did a fantastic job on the hit singles from the mm-hmm. Indian Summer album. But it's not cheap working with Peter Wolf, ah! and. And Ron was Ron was ARing the Indian Summer album as well. Uh-huh. And there came a point in the recording process where Ron said, Well look, you know, you can do two more songs with Peter Wolf, or you can do six songs with me. <laughs> so <laughs> so in order to, you know, complete the album and sure. have more diversity, we came into Hollywood and we we recorded six songs um with Ron. Uh, uh-huh. So as I say, a real music guy having Come from being a tape op in a recording studio, right the way through his own brief right. jazz pianist career, yeah, yeah. and then you know through to being our A and R man, and now obviously leader of the Free World, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: um Okay. Well, another question that we got,
1: and I was curious about
0: this too. That's something else you kind of touched on earlier. How does a how does a band like Go West, who's putting out their first album? get people like Pino Palladino and Alan Murphy to play on their album. And then what kind of, you know, what did those guys, uh, the question was specifically around those two, what did they bring to the table? What did they, you know, how did they influence your sound? I guess you talking again about your influences means it's not that far removed to have these two guys in particular play with you. We understand that now, but what did they bring to go West? And how did you even get them on your first
1: album? Yeah, well, so much. I mean, we, in the making demos process before we got signed, we worked with uh, uh, some heroes of ours, another duo that was signed to Epic. They were called The Quick. And we were recording a demo. Uh, The Quick were producing the demo and they called Alan in because they knew Alan. So Alan came in and played um, a solo on this particular track. And then by the time... I don't know whether Alan had played on the Go West album proper before I called him. He was in a hotel in Japan working with some artist. I remember that much anyway. And I asked him, would you be interested in playing in the band? And he said, you know, in very coolly and typical Alan style. He said, yeah, I don't mind. I wouldn't mind that. Yeah. I'll, I'll come and play in your band. But I know uh, from, from what I've heard him say since then, that often, in popular music, particularly at that time, and I'll use Alan's phrase, these are not my words, he was often called in to play what he would refer to as piddly little rhythm parts. Ah. And of course, in the context of Go West, he got the chance to to do his incredible thing and we just couldn't get enough of it either. So um, when he came into the studio, whenever we worked with any of these fantastic session players, it was always a wicked day because, you know, you're just, you're getting a private show in a certain mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the thing about Al always, because again, such an accomplished player, Alan preferred to not know <laughs> what the chord progression was mm-hmm. of the section that he was going to play over and just to wing it in the studio once he had a sound. And we also found that he was very definitely at his best in the first two takes. Oh, after really? Which he was, yeah, after which he was clearly thinking about it then. Yeah. And he'd become familiar with the chord progression and whatever was coming from his fingers was less spontaneous. Um, but yeah, I mean, you okay. can imagine some very, very exciting um, yeah. uh, recording sessions with Al. Absolutely. And, and Pino, I don't remember who... Um, I, I'd already done something, actually, outside of Go West much earlier I don't know how Pino got in touch with me I can't even mm. remember okay. he lived he still lives quite close to where I was living at that time oh. in Hampton I believe and um, I had done a little project with him uh, and a guy from called Dick Dunn who's a keyboard player and these guys are all Welsh I know Pino Palladino isn't a very Welsh sounding name <laughs> but they are and the, and the Welsh the Welsh Brotherhood man is a really, really? tight hit. Oh, yeah, these guys really, the Welsh are really loyal to one another. Um, Okay. So, so, but when Pino came along to play on the Go West album, I mean, again, just like Al, so much musicality. But the other thing about uh, Pino that I've I've mentioned previously is that, for example, when we recorded Call Me, Pino would come to the studio and say, what do you want me to play? Mm. And so we didn't really have a bass part, so... I'd be singing him ideas and he would, uh, I mean, the the chorus bass line is mine, but clearly when mm-hmm. Pino is playing a bass line,
3: when, yeah.
1: when he adds the Palladino to it, it's right. like, you know, it goes off into onto another level, of course it right. does, of course it does. Sure. Um, and in, in actual fact, I'm thinking about missing persons from the first Go West album. We had the, the the very 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 simplest version of what Pino um, played on that track, and now when I listen to that song, I realise how much of free is in that mm. is in that bassline that, that the melodic sort of Andy Fraser thing. But but anyway, as okay. I said, we had the dis- we had a two note we had a two note bassline, and Pino made it into something properly fantastic. Right, right. Um, but but the main thing I would say about Pino, I always say, is that he listened. He listened Uh, to what we said. You know, so if I made a suggestion, he never poo-pooed it or, you know, he just, he, he made it work. And so that made me feel good because there's a lot of me in the baseline of call me again, as I say, made, of course, so much more brilliant by the fact that he played it, but yeah, musicality and, and willingness to, to, to realize our vision rather than to stamp their own thing on what we were doing. That's huge. Um, Okay. One more question
0: from a Patreon member. His name is Derek Mansfield and he plays keyboards in bands like uh, Men Without Hats and uh, he wanted to know what keyboards you guys used on that first album.
1: Well, it was a bit of a Roland fest. I seem okay. to remember getting d- d- delivered a Roland synthesizer, which had a patch on it called "Go West," and we were like, oh. "Wait a minute, we never, we didn't give him permission to do this." Uh, <laughs> so, we were on the on the phone to Roland, but of course, you know, that w- where Richard and I were coming from when we were making the demos for songs like "Goodbye Girl" and uh, "One Way Street," which went on the soundtrack of Rocky IV. Yeah, you know, we had we had one synthesizer, we had a Roland. A Juno 106, I think it was. So obviously, it had that Roland sound, but what we used it for, and I'm not sure that we used it particularly successfully, but the idea behind those, what we call those Razzy sort of brassy uh, synth sounds was to simulate brass. We couldn't have a rhythm section, uh, a brass section. We couldn't possibly record saxophones and trumpets. So we used and thought of it in a positive way that, you know, it was a like a slightly modern take on having a brass section. Once we got together with Gary and Dave... Uh, I think Dave had a PPG wave. That's a big part of the sound of the of the riff when we close our eyes. Mm. It's the keyboard that's playing the sequence in missing persons and so on. Mm. But yeah, I mean, Gary and Dave were very interested in technology and up to date sure. with what the next synth was that would be coming out. And once we had any kind of a recording budget, of course we would be buying anything. That we thought could, would add to the sound. Right. But generally speaking, uh, the Jupiter. I don't know, is it called a Jupiter Eight or is it called a Jupiter? Anyway, that yeah. big synth, that Roland synth, yeah. that was the main. That was one of the main synths that we used. Didn't okay. use the Prophet Five, mm-hmm. a, a bit I suppose. But the, ba- the base on, um, we close our eyes, which might make Derek, g- smile. Uh, <laughs> was an SH101, which okay. was a, a, a cheap plastic. Synthesizer that had a hundred-step sequence in it, so it's that. So not not enough of a sequencer to play the whole song. Uh-huh. So we program. So we programmed in the first hundred steps of the bass part. That we close our eyes, and then in those days, uh, you there, there wasn't um, a reliable syncing device. I can't remember what it was called. Simpty was it? Or code? Mm. Anyway, the reason I mention it is because you had to press the start button on the sequencer at exactly the right point to get it to hook up, to be in time to play the next section of the song. Right. So even though it was technologically advanced, it was still steam-driven in a certain right. kind of, you know what I mean? Really <laughs> yes. rubber band stuff. Yes. But anyway, that's that's what he's playing the bass on. Okay. Is- okay,
0: good. Okay, I want, we have to talk about Rocky IV because um, that's a big deal and I, so One Way Street, doesn't as you mentioned, I was curious myself, doesn't end up on the first album, but it does end up on that soundtrack.
2: Sending a rose would never change your mind. I'm sure you don't know, but to me it seems so unkind. Chance to get you closer to me.
0: had other people from that soundtrack on here because I love it so much like Robert Tepper and um, I am curious again going back to the business side of things that movie is on all the time somewhere and I'm wondering if that has been a nice you know mailbox check over the years for you or if it was like a one-time thing you got paid a lump sum to give them the song and then that was the end of it.
1: Uh, well, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I don't know the answer to that question. I oh. can answer the first part of the question, which is to say it doesn't really generate any enormous amount of income. The only okay. the only song from the catalogue from which I still earn anything worthwhile is The King of Wishful Thinking from okay. Pretty Woman, which again, just as you say, is on somewhere all the time. Yep. I think it has yep. its own channel here. Yeah. <laughs> it's on 24 hours. But yeah, again... Sylvester Stallone is to be admired for how he, I won't say control, but how he has input at, in every detail of a project mm-hmm. that he's working on. Mm-hmm. So he invited us uh, to, to write a song or to provide a song for the soundtrack of Rock oh. and four. Uh, And we had One Way Street. So we put it to him and he said, yeah, that'd be great. So we recorded that again in LA Hmm. which is a fantastic experience. We really felt like pop stars having had you know, some success in the UK in 85 and then mm-hmm. immediately going to America. And now we're in a recording studio in California. You know, everything was happening all at the same time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But he came to the studio to meet with us. And after that, he left his man in the studio control room, sitting in the corner watching what we did. To make sure that we didn't take anything out of the song that's really like, really like, yeah yeah absolutely uh, um which you was know, you know
0: it's funny to say this but he was he had really great taste in music back then i mean these sound eye of the tiger and you know, yeah. the Rocky soundtracks and the Cobra soundtracks and over all these yeah. great movies he made, the soundtracks are fantastic. He knew what he yeah. was doing back then, musically.
1: Absolutely. And I, yeah. I think it's, again, I, I'm, I may not be right about this, uh, or it may be a, a, something that everybody knows. But when he sold the, uh, the screenplay for um, the Rocky, the original Rocky movie, mm-hmm. he wouldn't sell it unless they let him be the star. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was unknown at the time. And of course, the film studios were e- eager to buy the screenplay and put uh, an established name in it. Uh, and he said, no, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, you know, this is, yeah. Which is, you know, good luck to him, you know, obviously. It's, I know. It's, it, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. But it's it still, a, you know, to have that kind of self-belief is admirable. It is.
0: I I got to ask about The King of Wishful Thinking. Have you, you I assume, have seen the parody video that, Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd made of the or Yes, video. yes, yeah. absolutely.
1: And, and and as I said when I tweeted Jimmy um you know that there's a lot of love in that uh-huh. uh, in that There is. Uh, I don't know what the right word is mickey take pastiche whatever you want to call it but but again what what and the attention to detail it must have cost so much money to do that but i guess that's you know that's the world those guys know, so are living it. in yeah. yeah but um but it does it makes me laugh that we did our shoot in a day and they had two days to do this so, yeah well, yeah but uh, yeah yeah it's classic um
0: okay Let's talk about future now, just for a second, because I think it's such a fantastic album. I think Let Love Come is a hit song that should have been.
2: Mm-hmm. I woke up, she was gone. I got a good idea who should blame it on. Heaven sent, How to pay. She was candy sweet when she got away. Mm-hmm. Guess I shouldn't be out crying in the rain But it's such a beautiful day So I say to myself I will save my soul for somebody else Easy come, easy go When I work it out You'll be the first to know Guess I shouldn't be lost in the mystery But it's such a beautiful day
0: I don't know what kind of I don't I you know you're sort of a mystery here in the states. Other than a few songs, you don't come tour sure. over here. You're not overexposed.
1: Sure. We would come and tour if we could only make it. Uh, Covid aside, of course, if we could yeah, only course. make it. If we could only make it pay, we would love to come. It's been so long since yeah. we played in the states. We'd love to come. Yeah. Do you not it's get tricky.
0: invited to play in like you know the '80s
1: festivals over here? We do, but of course, you know because. Initially, because even if we used a house ban, because there are two of us, uh-huh. there are two visas to pay for and two mm. airfares and so yeah. on and so on. And of course, you know, aside from the King of Wishful Thinking and Faithful, uh, you could argue that we haven't had that much chance success. So wow. the, the, the budget just never seems to be there as much as yeah. we would love to come and play. Mm. Um, not so far anyway.
0: Yeah, it hurts. Uh, so anyway, I, I think what sparked you guys finally getting back together to make Future Now, which is an album that I don't know if everybody even knows is out there, but it's so great. And do you think you'll ever do it again?
1: That is a question I don't have the answer to right now. Obviously, where we are, I haven't seen Richard uh, in person in four months, you know, Uh, so mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are doing remote recordings. I've done some myself, but that idea has not come up in conversations with him. Um, but um, I came back to uh, living in California for five years and in Chicago for a year uh, before mm-hmm. I came back to the UK in 2000. My dad was not well and I came back to spend some time with him. I hadn't seen or worked with Richard for, for in, in any of that time. So mm-hmm. we hadn't done anything together for five or six years. And then John Glover, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who still manages Richard and myself, today, Mm -hmm. called and said, um, there's work for you guys, if you want to iron out your differences and get back on the circuit. So we had a few frank exchanges of views. And in the end, that's what we did. So we started working live, not particularly glamorous venues uh, or gigs, but Mm -hmm. um, it was making money. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing led to another and the gigs got better. Uh, we started to be in a position where we could afford to actually have a band. And then the next obvious step was to find some new material from somewhere. So that's kind of, yeah, one thing led to another,
0: really. Yeah. Okay. Was that, I don't even know, was that album well received over there? Was it, did you get played on the radio?
1: I don't think we got any radio play to speak of. You know, we, I find frustratingly that we get one of two reactions, which is (laughs) <laughs> much like yourself when you bought the Dancing on the Couch album, <laughs> oh, it doesn't sound like Go West, or, right. oh, it just sounds like the same I'll Go West. Oh. as You know, you can't win. It's one oh. or other of those two polar reactions, which, you know, you think someone would be happy. But yeah. anyway, um, oh. so, but no, effectively, Future Now was a, an independently funded album. Uh, and uh, yeah, just amongst Go West, the, uh, a small core fan base of go west fans here in the uk really
0: oh i love i love that album oh Um, thank you now i lastly i have to admit i feel a little guilty that i've saved some of your other solo albums to the end Not not at all i think riding the blinds is your best work i absolutely love this album and i wish again more people knew i mean Damn the brakes is great too, but riding the blinds I think is especially strong. I like uh, kissing you. you is really good. There's so many good songs.
2: Humble pie, eastbound trains, guilty eyes, lipstick stains, painted sky, lover's moon, watching them missing you. Slamming doors, speeding cars, jewelry stores, shooting stars, ankle chains, rose tattoos. Watching them, missing you. Watching them, and missing you.
0: When you set out, going back to this theme again, when you set out to make your solo albums, are you actively trying to you know, cover country songs or blues or sound like free or whatever? I mean, if this is your chance to do what you want. I I'm imagine yeah. you're indulging that yeah. on these solo albums.
1: To some extent, yeah, certainly with Damn The Breaks. That was, you know, I'm a, I'm a wannabe guitar player. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the effects that Alan had when he arrived was uh, the end of my guitar playing career <laughs> because I, I played quite a lot of the simple guitar on the first Go West album with with the help of a, uh, an understanding uh producer helping me with bits of tissue paper and to stop the ringing strings and all that kind of stuff but you know i got to play quite a lot of guitar i'm playing the rhythm guitar on um we close our eyes i'm playing Mm -hmm. the rhythm guitar on don't look down i'm playing the rhythm guitar on missing person so i i got to play some really simple guitar parts because i of course had come up with those simple parts in the writing of the songs Mm -hmm. but then when someone like alan comes along and you go well. I'll just let Al do it <laughs> because uh-huh. you know he because he was so fantastic, and you know could make something magical happen in two minutes, and then yeah. the job is done. You don't have to spend six hours mm-hmm. struggling with not get, being able to hold that e string down or whatever it is. You know when, so you could just you know hang out and enjoy right. Al. Come and then so because I am a wannabe guitar player, I've got a. A fairly extensive and embarrassing collection of guitars for someone who doesn't play terribly well. Oh, yeah. But, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm thinking about Joe Bonamassa. You know, Joe Bonamassa, yeah. here's a guy, and, you know, obviously he's playing to a different audience, mm-hmm. but crucially, it seemed to me, he's putting out four, five, six albums a year and oh. never worrying about whether he wrote the songs or whether they, you know, whatever. Yeah. He just, you know, obviously there's an audience and they're buying the records. And so that's totally working. But, He just does what he wants to do. And so when it came to Damn the Breaks, I thought, well, you know, well, this is, why do I have to feel like I've got to write every song on this record? There's all kinds of things I could be doing. Burlesque, for example. I mean, to me uh, in my sensibilities, that's one of the greatest guitar riffs of ever, yes. of all yes. time. It's just yes. wonderful, brilliant. Yes. So, so to, to have the opportunity to indulge myself, if you like, and record that song was brilliant. But Riding the Blinds is, was a totally separate and different uh, state of affairs. Mm. What happened there was uh, Steve McMillan, McMahon? Um, who oh, is I've the proprietor? Yes, yeah, he's the proprietor of S1 Publishing. Yeah, and so he came to my manager, obviously, with positive thoughts about me as a singer, and said, "I want an album of." It's it's like an ad really for mm-hmm. his catalogue of of the writers that he's got signed to the company. He wanted new versions of songs that he published so that he could shop them in Nashville and elsewhere. So he came to John, uh, offered me um, a small budget to make that record and gave me two CDs with 40 songs on them and Mm. said, "Choose, choose 12 of these songs. So my manager's view was, here's an opportunity for you to make a record for your... Fan base, um, where someone is providing you with a budget, because frankly, that doesn't happen every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and yeah, obviously, all the songs are uh, country slash Americana flavored, mm-hmm. because that's the nature of Steve's publishing uh, roster. So yeah, I chose mm-hmm. um, ten or twelve songs from the ones he gave me, and we did a we made a record in a very efficient carefully managed time but you know with again with the help of some brilliant players uh, richie barrett richie barrett who plays a lot of the guitars there you know would come into the studio and obviously you'd have a blueprint of this or that song missing you for example Mm -hmm. but i would say to richie how can we make this intro sound know not quite so country for example and Richie would put forward ideas and that's that recording process that's how that worked but he he did fantastic work there and uh, and everything as I say the the time management was very careful and very efficient Mm -hmm. yeah it's so
0: strong it uh, it's so good and I just I hope people who love what you've done with go west will seek that out if they haven't already because it uh, deserves to be heard um, thank you sir. oh you know you talking about singing these covers and you're obviously really good at that and I'm gonna save one of these to the very end because I want to ask you about it i I was curious and uh um okay I'm just gonna come out and ask this i I could see someone like a David Foster type coming to you and wanting to make an album of you singing standards kind of yep. like he did with seal or you know, like Clive Davis did with Rod Stewart. Now, I don't like those albums. I don't necessarily want to listen to those albums, but you seem like somebody whose voice and style is nimble enough that the right producer could come along and conceivably ask you to do something like that. Maybe that's sort of what, you know, riding the blinds is, but I could see something like that happen. Has it ever, do you get approached with that kind of thing? Does that make
1: sense? There's been some rumblings on that subject more recently. So I know my manager is hinting at the idea. Mm. My manager also represents Tony Hadley, the singer from Spandau of course, Broadway. Yes, and um, yeah, and I think Tony may even be in the process of making such a wondered. record. It makes um, sense. Yeah, it's it's not it's not really. It's tricky. You know, you've got to be realistic about where you are in the world. And Mm -hmm. as I said earlier, having the opportunity to make a record as long as you haven't got to make too many compromises Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. someone who's providing you with a budget is an opportunity that is not to be dismissed. But I would say about Riding the Blinds, for better or worse, one of the nice things about it was that although we sent Steve works in progress, Gary and I, we made that record with our vision of the mm-hmm. songs. Good. So it wasn't a question of um, mm-hmm. a big producer yeah. on a on a mission, that, uh, on instructions, shall we say, from a mm-hmm. label to say, we need this to appeal to this market. We didn't have any of that pressure. So he just said to me, make of these songs what mm-hmm. you will. And so to some extent, you can't take all of the Americana out of it, but we certainly... Yeah. We didn't make a country record, I don't think. I mean, I think that the, the songs are country. No, but you know what I mean. Yeah. We, got to, we got to, yeah, we got to yeah. realize our vision rather than having someone looking over our shoulders. So, right. as I say, coming back to your suggestion of a, an album of covers, I'm definitely not dismissive of covers in any way. I, I can't see why, you know, here's Springsteen, who's arguably one of the greatest songwriters of his or any other generation, and when he plays a three-hour show, he plays all kinds of covers. Yeah, so yeah. If it's good, right. if it's good enough for Bruce, you know, right. because it gives you an opportunity to 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 hear how your band plays that yeah. song and how you interpret that that lyric. But uh, so I I I'm, I wouldn't be dismissive, but at mm. the same time, I'd like to dream that it would have an angle rather yeah. than being too obvious. That's all. Good point. Good point. I uh,
0: I just I could see. And again, I don't necessarily want this, but I want you to be successful and I want you to reach the most amount of people. And I'm imagining I could see you in front of a large band or orchestra in like a tux with an undone tie, you know, and a drink in your hand, <laughs> you know, singing standards or whatever, you know, and and uh, just nailing it. But anyway, I, I just was curious if that had ever happened. Okay. I am just curious when you look back, Peter, over this career of yours, what are what's your favorite story? Do you have a... Did you get to meet Paul Rogers? Did you get to hang out with Michael McDonald? Did you share a, a drink or a smoke with some one of your favorites? I mean, I don't know. What Like, what's your favorite story from all this time?
1: Well, it'd be difficult to choose just one. But since you mentioned um, Michael McDonald, Michael and other artists are involved with Yamaha Musical Instruments. And mm-hmm. in return for sponsorship or endorsement or whatever else, um, some of these artists are uh, gathered together to do educational music performances. And for one reason or another, I found myself in Minneapolis on such a bill with uh, Chucka Khan oh. and Michael McDonald. And by the way, um, an A-list of Nashville players, the band was just out oh. of this world, absolutely yes. out of this world. And of course, I was you know, right down at the beginning of, mm-hmm. of, of the roster, which is, you know, entirely to be expected. But I did, uh, I was in this convention center in uh, in Minneapolis, bit concrete, not the ideal place to be listening to music. And it was set up for the production run-through. So I could sing, for example, with the band for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And after I'd done my thing, uh, and the band were awesome, so it was just like play sing the songs once through, yeah, that sounds fantastic, thank you very much. Move on to the next guy who was sound checking, and in the end, uh, Michael McDonald came in and he sat at the piano and he played Stevie Wonder's All in Love is Fair, mm. um, just piano and vocal, beautiful. And I, I, yeah, and I really had a little moment because I was there on my own, I didn't have oh. anyone traveling with me, I didn't have any management, so I'm standing behind this concrete pillar with my knuckles in my mouth you know what i mean uh-huh. and i was just listening to him it was just it, it was just incredible and and then afterwards i found myself in an elevator with michael and his entourage and he said something nice to me and of course when when you're you know when one of your idols uh-huh. gives you that kind of positivity you know there's it's mm-hmm. it's it's just great and yeah. um and going back to mm-hmm just try and make this short going back to my initial idols free uh the songwriting partnership in that band were andy fraser and paul rogers largely Mm -hmm. and uh andy fraser was the bass player and a few years ago i was invited to do one of those interviews where you give your top five or five songs Mm -hmm. yeah and so it was with a a TV channel here, a streaming TV channel called Vintage TV. Mm-hmm. So I went into London to the studio, and obviously they were recording these interviews with various people back to back, one after mm-hmm. another. So I stood outside in the corridor, waiting to go into the studio to do my half an hour. And it turned out that Andy Fraser was the person before no! me uh, really? being filmed. Yeah, but the but the punchline to this story is the King of Wishful Thinking was one of the five songs that you chose. What? No. How awesome is that? It was, <laughs> I mean, talk about making your day, your week, yes. your year. So I got to meet Andy Fraser. I got to hang out with him. I got to be a complete fanboy and tell him oh. how much his early songs had meant to me. Yeah. I was actually playing one of his latest songs as a cover in my solo show i said that to him he said uh-huh. oh thanks i always liked that song he said i wish i could have sung it better anyway so king of wow. were thinking, absolutely Good unbelievable view. and Good he said him. and he said you know well no man you've got your own thing going on and i thought well that's just you know my thing in a way is your thing right i mean all the way full circle you know because right. yeah so awesome
0: oh that is the best story i was hoping you would say something like that that is so good peter i just uh i love you i love you guys i you're thanks so sa- much john everything if you can't tell i mean i i care so deeply about everything that you do and i listen for it and i love it and i'm rooting for you and i wish so much that i could see you in concert one of these days but um anyway i'm just grateful i'm grateful for everything that you've done and put out there you're the best thanks so much John. thank Absolutely. you appreciate it Um, now I gotta ask you about one more cover lastly I found this I didn't know this existed until getting ready to talk to you I found a cover of Strange Brew that you did with Jimmy Copley and Jeff Beck. the story of this uh
1: well jimmy copley was the drummer in the second incarnation of the go west live band tony beard was the drummer both fantastic drummers but yeah jimmy copley was the drummer in the second live incarnation of go west and jimmy had uh, um, played with jeff beck uh, prior to that and um jimmy had also worked with uh, a japanese solo guitar hero called char Mm -hmm. and in connection with that a Japanese label gave Jimmy a budget to make a solo album, a solo album by a drummer. You don't hear many of those. No. Uh, but he had a budget and he very kindly invited me to sing on several songs on that record. Um, Jeff Beck isn't actually on uh, Strange Brew, oh, the I thought track I was- that. Okay. No, but he, he is on the album, and I yeah. do sing on a track with Jeff Beck. Uh, it's uh, it's a cover of Every Day I Have the Blues, right. which was my choice of song. Um, because Jimmy was very kind to say, what would you like to sing? So I said, I'd like to sing this. And so the personnel on that track is Jimmy playing drums, Pino is on bass, and Jeff Beck is on oh, guitar. And no. I couldn't be at the session because I was playing a gig with Go West in no. Peterborough. To about 110 people that night. So so I had to put my vocal on afterwards. So I still haven't met Jeff Beck and I didn't get to be in the room, which would have been great because my understanding from Jimmy, bless him, R.I.P., Mm -hmm. was that, you know, Jeff, he doesn't, Jimmy's memory of Jeff was that he doesn't, he doesn't like to muck about. He likes to open a bottle of whiskey and play. He just Mm -hmm. wants to play. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want it to be too complicated. He just wants to have a drink and play some guitar. So that would have been an awesome session to be on. But unfortunately, oh, I was man. otherwise engaged, yeah.
0: Shoot, well, it's a strong song too, and it's great. Again, thank you, Peter. It means so much. You've been a dream guest of mine for five years and we finally thank made you, it Thank you,
1: John. You're very you. kind to say. Cheers. All right,
0: there you have it, Peter Cox. And we're going to close it out with that blues tune that he was talking about. Keep in mind. The guitarist on this song is Jeff Beck, there's Pino Palladino, there's Jimmy Copley, and there's Peter on vocals. Compare this song to We Close Our Eyes, which we kick this so- this episode off with. That is the diversity and the layers of Peter Cox. He does it all. Anyway, I really appreciate this. You know, it's interesting. When Martin and I did our interview five years ago, I think that was episode 20 or 30 or something like that, um, He, Martin, said who he thought the three greatest soul singers, white soul singers, in UK history were. Peter Cox, Paul Young, and Paul Carrick. And I have to agree. And by the way, I've tried to get the other Pauls on here, and I've never heard back from either one. So hopefully we get all three of those guys on here eventually. But anyway, I love Peter Cox, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Now next week, here's the deal. I have probably half a dozen interviews with uh, prominent producers in the can, and I know that my producer interviews are often you guys' favorites. So instead of putting them out back to back to back to back, I think I'm gonna scatter them. So we'll do an artist, and a producer, and then an artist, and then a producer, and then an artist, so on and so on. So next week's guest is a very prominent producer. I'll just say it. Next week's guest is youth producer youth who also played the played bass in killing joke and started the orb and started the fireman with Paul McCartney that's who next week's guest is okay there that is a crazy conversation there is so much to cover in that one. I hope you guys come back and check that out. You're going to love it. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan, the Man Malkiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do and for putting this together. I'm so glad we get to do this together. We have a recap episode coming out later this week, by the way, so look out for that. Thanks again to Peter and Martin. Guys, we love you. We'll talk to you next week. Every day. Every
2: day. Every day. Every day. It's you I hate to lose